Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, a podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. Today is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, and we're continuing our series of guest speakers called The State of Play on the Mu Lowdown. And today we have Rachel Chang Kui. Rachel, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Before uh, we get into our, our topic, which is school districts in California, I'm going to introduce you to our audience. Uh, Rachel Chang Kui is a registered Muni advisor at Fieldman. Rollup and Associates, one of the longest serving independent financial advisors to governments in California. And over the past 14 years, you've been advising school districts and community college districts on their capital facilities funding plans, such as general obligation bonds, these revenue bonds, community facility, facilities, district special tax bonds, as well as long-term funding programs. And you have experiences with other aspects of K through 14 consulting, which include developer fees, redevelopment, continuing disclosures, and annual administration of community facilities districts. Rachel, welcome to our show, and let's get started. Uh, since you're based in California and you cover school districts, let's talk about that. And I know in California, most of the funding comes from the state directly. Uh, I believe there's roughly 100 billion, give or take, coming from three main sources. The bulk of it coming from the state, as I mentioned, about 58%, property taxes, and other sources, comprise another 32% give or take, and about 9% come from the federal government. But on top of that, you've got the governor mentioning, Gavin Newsom mentioning how the state is anticipating a, a huge budget surplus of roughly $76 billion. And you've got federal stimulus money coming into the state, which if you incorporate all three components, you've got the CARES Act from last year, you've got the American Rescue Plan that, was, that came out this year. Uh, we're looking at could be another 15 to 20 billion going to the states. And I believe LAUSD, that's probably the second largest school district in the country is getting roughly 4 billion on its, on its own. So with all this money flying around, I'm assuming it's gonna be enough for the school districts or do you think it's just gonna be enough for them to hold on a little bit longer? Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, having school age children myself, I certainly hope our school districts will be well funded. Um, the state budget, as it currently stands, outperforms the expectations of many as compared to when the pandemic first started last year. It is, however, important to note that these federal stimulus funding, including the CARES Act, the CRRSA, or American Rescue Plan, are one-time funding and restricted funding. They're meant to help school districts and community college districts to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and to address learning loss. They are not reoccurring federal revenues that school districts can count on for future years. Additionally, we should not lose sight of the state deferrals or IOUs this year. Those are the current year funding that the school district will not receive from the state until 2021-22. While these emergency funding has helped improve the near-term financial outlook of many, 
school districts are still faced with the same dilemma moving forward, unless this increase in federal funding is here to stay, or there is a fundamental shift in how California allocates funding to local educational agencies. So with that in mind, changing shifts, let me ask you briefly about charter schools. I know about 6 million, give or take, like you said, you have kids in school right now. About 9 out of 10 attend roughly 9,000 regular schools in over 1,000 school districts, while about 11%, give or take, attend about 1,200 charter schools, which are publicly funded but not subject to the same state regulations. Do you see any changes in shifting toward charter schools, which are traditionally smaller and could be customized? We do see data on the numbers of students enrolled in charters, as well as charters operating in the state that show momentum in California's charter growth. And I think this shift has been made even more pronounced during the pandemic, as more students and parents look for online program support. This is not just a phenomenon here in California, but nationwide. Many charter school districts are reporting greater enrollment, wait lists, and operating surpluses than projected. Also based on data, California has the most charter public schools and charter school students in any states in the nation. Ultimately, I think only time can tell, but generally speaking, our population seems to have a growing appreciation and having choices for different education programs May it be traditional, Montessori, or any other specialized programs offered by charters. Thanks. I want to continue on, the, the, as I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, where uh, the state seems to be flush with cash in terms of um, surplus and, and federal money coming in. Do you think, well, as I mentioned, that because the state education funding is so heavily reliant on the state's general fund, but which is also volatile on income taxes, and in general, they're very vulnerable to economic fluctuations. Do you think now that this could be a golden age for munis, meaning the stock market's doing well, interest rates are fairly low, and I believe the top 1% in California of income earners pay more than 40% of personal income taxes. So this could just sort of move things along well in California. Do you agree with that? Or what do you think in terms of that? That is the million dollar question, right? Um, I do agree that California personal income taxes are not only the largest source of the state's general fund, but also the source of that $75.7 billion of operating surplus you mentioned earlier during the podcast. And that was reported in the governor's most recent May budget revision. With regards to volatility of these revenues, personal income taxes specifically, the good news is that the state of California has done an excellent job setting money aside each year and building up their rainy day fund, which should allow the state to better weather any economic uncertainties in the future. And to answer your questions, if this golden age of munis will continue, I remain cautiously optimistic. Munis saw the 13th consecutive week of inflows, right. meaning money coming in the municipal bond market. And the forward calendar signals a very busy quarter ahead. On top of that, the Biden administration's proposed tax changes, which aim to increase taxes for 
including the group of high bracket or high income individuals who support the demand for tax exempt municipal bonds. There are also other changes within the president's the American Jobs Act, such as the provisions allowing issuers to take advantage tech of tax credit, qualified school infrastructure bonds that will help incentivize issuers and stimulate the muni market. We shall see how inflation risk and economic optimism play out. We shall see indeed. Now, just a few more questions. So that was, as you mentioned, like the potentially the good stuff. But let's talk about the flip side where costs involved. Every school district has to deal with costs. And I believe district, district costs are rising faster than the state funding. And less than a decade ago, school districts were required to pay about 8% of their teacher payrolls for pensions. Now that contribution will rise to 19%, requiring districts to pay about a billion dollars more. And in half of all districts, declining enrollment is leading to reduced funding from the state. So, and you've compounded to that, the pressure to increase teacher salaries are putting many districts in a financial bind. And I know, obviously, like whether it's a public or a private entity, You've got to spend on healthcare for your employees, current employees and retirees. So with that in mind, the federal government made it very clear that the American Rescue Plan funds are not meant to plug pension deficits, whether it's at the state level or lower. So how can school districts fix their uh, financial situation, whether it's pensions or healthcare costs? What can they do? That is exactly the difficult decision that every school district in the state face, how you balance your budget with limited resources and increasing cost. You're exactly correct that um, these federal one-time funding we mentioned earlier, or, um, or these stimulus dollars for that matter, they're not for solving pension deficits. I will note that the, the state did step in and provided one-time funding to districts to help offset the increasing pension cost. A few school districts that I work with have local foundations that offer tremendous support for their educational programs, which then free up available revenues for other needs, such as pension deficits. Other school districts have received parcel tax revenues approved by their voters, which go towards specific programs and district priorities, allowing more resources at the district's disposal for storage or purse cost. I think the solution to fixing the financial situation would be unique to each school district, considering its own priorities and challenges. This issue, however, is not unique to most school districts. I see. So as I mentioned earlier that California receives very little federal funding per students. In fact, California ranks 21st in the country in terms of spending and funding. Now, with the cash coming in and the one-time federal funds, do you think that things are not going to change going forward? Do you think there's going to be enough in the rainy day fund for future predicaments? Or do you think the state could use more? Because uh, it's one of the, obviously, the largest states in the country in terms of population. Do you think more federal funds will be needed in the future. I'm certainly in support of more federal funding for education. Um, California as a state used to spend more on education before Proposition 13 was approved by the voters in 1978. 
Proposition 13, among other things, limited local property tax rates and state and local revenues. Meanwhile, we continue to see positive trend of California K-12 spending catching up to the national average. Not saying that that's where we should stop, but for California to move up in education spending and funding after years of underinvestment, it will require changes on how funding is allocated for school districts at both the state and federal levels. So with also with that in mind, in terms of, uh, as I mentioned, alluded to earlier, in terms of cost of living, uh, California obviously has a high cost of living. Uh, and school districts in the state can't afford fewer teacher staff and services given available resources. And we've read about how some teachers can't live in the districts that they teach just because it, they, um, it's so unaffordable there. Do, we, do you think we need to overhaul the whole housing regulation to create more affordable housing? I saw something on the news recently how the state has like an old law that basically uh, only allows like, does not allow like multi-dwelling in certain areas. Do you think we need to revamp this so that teachers can actually work where they live or vice versa? I think overhauling the, the housing regulations, I'll, I'll leave that to um, experts and not mm -hmm. pretend to be one here. Uh, I agree with you. Housing affordability has been and continues to be a hot topic here in California, teacher housing included. I've heard someone describe it that most teachers make just enough that they do not qualify for affordable housing, but not enough to actually afford housing in California. There are various state resources that assist teachers with finding affordable housings. And we've seen school districts, especially those in regions that experience the most significant disparity between teacher salaries and housing costs, they're looking at addressing the issue some through utilizing voter approved general obligation bond dollars to fund employee housing and some through joint ventures with local jurisdiction or private partners and certainly everything in between yes and i think i believe there's a term for it where like you mentioned before uh if you're if you can't you're you make too much to for uh, lower income housing, and but you don't make enough to afford regular housing. There's some term for it, which I, escapes you right now. But yes, I know what you're talking about. So right. then shifting away from the, the teachers and the workers, let's talk about the population and parents. Uh, California's birth rate has fallen. Population growth is slowing in somewhat. And migration, partly due because, as I mentioned, the housing costs, but also during the COVID-19 pandemic, many parents say that they're considering leaving the public education system altogether or moving out of the state. And as you know, districts lose per pupil revenues as enrollment dwindles, but they are usually unable to reduce the staffing facilities and so forth. What is there a solution to this situation? Well, I, I guess good weather and the beaches are not enough to keep them here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen okay. <laughs> success with regards to solutions to, to this declining enrollment. I've seen success with school districts proactively planning for the solution. Rather than reacting to the enrollment loss when it hits, 
Many bring in experts and study their local demographics, birth rates, student generation rates, and even more to project future enrollment. For example, although the, the population moving out of state is under the spotlight these days, many enrollment projections that I've seen point to lower birth rates as the leading factor for the recent enrollment drops. Drops in the birth rates year over year create smaller kinder classes, which then trickle through the grade levels as they move up. As you can imagine, this would have a long-term impact on enrollment. The insight on future enrollment slash per pupil funding then becomes the foundation on how school districts develop budgetary plans for future years. Many school districts also start board level and community level discussions and, and putting those in motion early ahead of having to make budgetary reductions due to enrollment loss. While the magnitude of cost reductions may not always uh, keep up with the revenue losses, events planning is one of the solutions that I've seen implemented successfully to address declining enrollment. All right, Rachel, that's, that sounds great. And if you don't mind hanging on, I got one last question for you. So I want to ask you about a bill that I believe just passed. It's a $15 billion school bond measure, Senate Bill 22. And I believe, and you can explain to me how I believe this, this, the voters in California rejected this bond measure last year. And if, if that's, and that was probably the first time in 30 years that they rejected the bond measure, but I believe it sort of had to be, had again this year. Do you want to tell me more about this um, sure. school bond measure? So the school bond measure uh, that was rejected by California voters first time in 30 years was Proposition 13 during March 2020 election. March 2020, I think you can agree, was one extraordinary election in history. I think there yes. were many reasons that let up to the failure of the statewide school bond, as well as many local school bonds. In March, voters rejected over 60% of local school bonds. Historically, uh, we see them pass at a much higher rate. Since March, we've seen greater support for school bonds, with 80% of these measures passing in November 2020. I also think COVID-19 has highlighted the need for a safe school facility to support education. I'm certainly happy to see legislative support for another attempt to briefly discuss Senate Bill 22, which just passed the Senate, if approved by the Assembly, will be placed on a future 2022 ballot for the California voters to decide on a $15 billion authorization that will fund the construction and modernization of pre-K through 14 and university facilities. The provisions related to the K-12 portion in SB 22 mirror those in Proposition 13. In addition, SB 22 seeks to increase local bonding limit for districts. There is another bill, AB 75, the Kindergarten to Community College Public Education Facilities Bond Act of 2022 that is also working its way through the legislative process. 
All of this is to help address the facility needs in the state, educational facilities specifically. The existing authorization under the state facility program is virtually exhausted. So here in California, the state provides matching funds for districts and issuers that um, for school construction and modernization projects. To date, the state has received more project applications than available bond authority. SB 22, if approved by the legislature and supported by California voters in 2022, would provide those much needed matching funds to help address the crisis of school facilities, which will have a long-term positive impact on education in general. End of the day, costs of construction continue to increase each year, kicking the can down the road would only cost taxpayers more if we do not start addressing the aging facilities or new projects needed to have our students return safely to in-person instructions. Speaking of planning for facilities, it is also important for issuers to start planning so with their financing plan in mind. I believe that prudent financing is foundational to a successful building program. Very interesting. Yes. Like you said, kick, kick the can down the road uh, could impact uh, future taxpayers. But Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Very insightful, very interesting. And we hope to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If any of your listeners have questions, please feel free right. to reach well, out. We're going to post this on social media so that people can uh, listen and hopefully share what they heard today. But that's our show for today. Many thanks to Rachel Chang Kuei and her insights on school districts in the state of California. And many thanks to you, our listeners, who tune in week after week for the latest on distressed mini debt on the Mini Lowdown, the podcast produced by Deadwire Municipals. Thank you for your time and take care, everybody. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.